you know, I saw you guys in the early 80s, and I wanted to ask you, you know, as M2Me as a band, you mm -hmm. know, I know I got a chance to see you, but did you guys actually tour that much? Because you were so busy in the no, studio. No, no, we didn't. We didn't because because of the uh, production activity. I mean, yeah. we may be doing like four or five projects a year, man. You know, and we, we got we to, for those that don't know, I'll take them back. Back in those days, a producer was the producer. It wasn't like uh, there's 13 tracks and 17 producers, you know what I mean? Uh, and there was a certain continuity that records had, just like the soundtracks. I mean, why does Shaft sound like it does? Why does Superfly? I mean, because there's a continuity of sound, you know? And I think that's one of the things that's lacking today. You know, you got 30 producers, man. And, you know, you used to be able to put an album, look, we spent time even dealing with the sequencing of the songs, you know, like, well, what feels like it should flow? But you now today, you know, you got a bunch of people, they all bring their song and then they flap it, you know, scotch tape it together, man. And I'm not saying these aren't great producers, but I do miss the chemistry of a mindset. Oh, yeah, the continuity and the flow. I mean, those, yeah. that's when it's a real work of. of yeah, P Funk. I mean, you know, it's a flow, man. Of art. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so, but when I saw you guys in the early 80s, I really enjoyed it because it was part of like one of those funk fests. Oh, okay. And, um, you know, it was really fun when you guys did hip dip, skip to beat. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. With like the, the silhouette. Oh, you had the screen. You saw us when we had the screen. Yeah, yeah. And the oh, dancer. Yeah. And he would start getting the beat, you know. Right, and he was, like, right, a right. It was kind of like your guys, Sir Nose Devoid of Funk or something. Right, yeah, yeah. I was, was a brother named Zarkov. One day I was walking down Times Square. You know, and and the the whole breakdance thing was just not whatever he was doing was just coming coming in the flow. I saw him, man. I said, man, would you like to go on tour? And he was like, he's a street dancer, but he was so important in terms of the overall texture and tapestry that I wanted to, to present. You know, uh, also we probably was the first R and B band to ever use rappers. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde on the. Uh, uh, the Breathless album, I think it is. Uh, do it's a song in there called Deep Freeze. And uh, one of the guys was Andre Harrell. Oh, okay. Who now be, you know, became a, a, a great CEO of record company. That's the first time an R&B band had ever done a, a song, to my knowledge, with, with, with rappers. You know, we always tried to hear what the next thing was. So when you were putting those records together, were you intentionally trying to make them you know varied you know we're gonna have this many mid-tempo or this one's funky this one's a ballad how'd you put them together i i don't think it was i was that that much into to the design as much as it that's just how it flowed i mean the one thing i did like doing was a reprise on records like you know with juicy fruit at the end of the album there's something called the after six mix Mm -hmm. You know, you, me, and he. At the end of that uh, album, there's the, the monogamy mix where there's this conversation between uh, uh, his husband and wife. But um, I didn't think of it, you know, like, okay, I got to write two ballads here because I love ballads, you know. But uh, like I said, I know what my time zone is. You know, you, me, and he was a ballad, you know. Yeah. Like, a different kind of subject matter, but it was a ballad. So, you know, and I think you coined that term sophistifunk. Sophistifunk, right? yes. Yeah, yeah. So that was sort of, well, what elements to you make sophistic funk? I came out of jazz. 
So there's a certain influence, of course. I mean, you listen to the closer. One of the things that makes that different, the, the chord progressions. I mean, not that they're way out, they're simplistic, but it's a jazz. There's 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 a texture in that of jazz. What you gonna do with my loving? Do, 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 do. There's a ding, ding. You know, it's just a little jazzy, but in the context of R&B and funk, because right under that is that thing. You know what I mean? So that's what I call it, sophistical, sophistical. I mean, the orchestration was very plush. You know how to love me and all that, but under that, man, there's a groove, man. Mm -hmm. I heard, I heard you say um, that you know, for juicy fruit, you you wanted to kind of. You went to the laboratory and you wanted to oh, try yeah. to see oh, my how, God. how much could you strip away and still make it a groove and all yes. that. So can you talk about that? Well, that I, I, process give you, a bit? I give you the great, the biggest story from that album. Okay, Tawatha's on tour with uh, Roxy Music. She's in Europe. We're in there, you know, we had finished the album, you know, the tracks. She has a couple of days off because I wrote Juicy Fruit after the album was finished. I was just like, I was in the studio. I forgot what, I, I mean, the session was over. The cats had went home. And uh, there was a Lynn drum machine sitting there. I remember back then on R&B, nobody was using a drum machine. So I said, well, I, I told the, uh, the engineer, man, we'll hook that up. So I'm messing around with it. So I come up with this. Which is actually a conga beat. And so he said, okay, let's quantize it. I said, no, man, it's a little off. I want to humanize it. Don't, don't make it perfect, because then that ain't, that ain't this. Mm -hmm. So I thought about it, called the guys back. They come back like one and two in the morning. We laid the track. I called T. She's off for a couple of days. She's in London. She flies back. Now, that laboratory, I decided, and I don't know if there was any album done like this before this, there's no reverb on nothing. So she's trying to, nothing, no keyboards, no drums, no nothing. So Tawatha comes in and I mean, very correctly, she tells me, I can't sing to this because it's flat. So I said, okay, okay. So our compromise was, I said, you're right. So I said, you record, I'll put reverb on it so you can record it. I said, then we'll take it off when we mix it. She said, cool. So. That was the funny story. She, she couldn't sing it because it was, I don't understand. A, a singer can't sing when it's just flat. It's like crazy. It's like you're in a chamber. But that album, again, you want a story? That album, they didn't want to release Juicy Fruit. First concern they had was, you know, the lyric was a little risque back then. And that, was, that, that, that means was, nothing now. That was epic, right? Blame yeah, epic. So, they thought I had lost it. Actually, they wanted me to go in and redo another album with a producer. Now, I'm pissed. Like, are you kidding? One thing I knew about Juicy Fruit, man, I knew it was different. And the one thing you know about something different, either people will get it or they won't. So their compromise to me was, okay, we ain't gonna release it, release it for daytime. We're only releasing it for nighttime. So it only was released for those after 12 shows, you know, the midnight hour. After one week, the record company was getting so many calls. And one of the one of the one of the one of the comments was from one of the program directors, this is the only song we've ever played where people know the song by the beat before anything is sung or played. Just that beat. And 
and I'm not going to pretend that I knew that that beat would be that historic, but that wasn't the hippest thing in the song to me. I thought the chords was like, oh, dig these changes. But people determine what, what what's valued, and they said no to beat. Well, it's the beat, I mean, it's all of it, but the beat and also the way Tawatha lays back in it. Oh, man, come on, man. It's, it's all of that. And, and, and you can't in, in, in any way diminish the vocal performance because that's the tip of every iceberg. I don't care how good your song is. If it's a lame vocal performance, and it ain't happening. I don't care how good the vocalist is if it's a lame track. You know, lame is lame. <laughs> okay. So that was 83. So it's right in the same period. You know, I'm thinking you, you mentioned about the Lindrum. You know, it's right around the same time when, like, Prince really came in with yes. it. And uh, also with the risque stuff. So I think between Juicy Fruit and Prince, that really kind of was a big trend or a big breakthrough that year. Yeah, I know that's, that's a great point. I, and I, 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 I'll agree with that. I'll agree with that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There was like some breaking out of what was considered risque. But the most dangerous song, and when I say dangerous, I don't mean in a literal sense, but the song that got the most visceral response was You, Me, and He. I remember after we did that album, there was a, there was a bar we went to that was uh, uh, close to the, to the restore, record, recording studio. So the record was out, and we went to this bar because the guy who ran the bar, a guy named Niels, he was a great cook, and he was Southern, you know, so you have all these, all this Southern cuisine. And we'd always go, so I went in there to get something to eat one night, and he said, him too, mate, you just missed it. 20 minutes ago, I said, what? He said, I had to call the police. I said, a guy jumped on his woman because she kept playing you, me, and he. And he said, you trying to tell me something? No, that unnerved a lot of guys. Wow. Yeah, you know, because <laughs> they're used to hearing the love triangle, but the other way. Yeah, Maybe right. I met I met this woman at the shoe store. Yeah, but whatever. But yeah. for a guy <laughs> to have to digest it, you know, and the lyrics are very clear with the dynamics of did, did you play that one live much? Oh, yeah, every set. Uh -huh. that, yeah. That was, like I would say, our best tour. We did. We was out for about seven months with Kashif. And that was a great, that was a great chemistry. Mm -hmm. um, so you had that great success. Um, I mean, how did your life change when that became such a big hit? You know, you got... You got probably the most fame and recognition you'd ever had, right? Yeah. But remember what I told you. I'm sorry, you're not finished, but no, I was just asking how how your how your life kind of changed when you got that level of success and fame. Well, I mean, look, economically, it allowed you to do obviously a few things, but you you have to remember with me, my standards were very different. I'm coming from my musical influences. It's Coltrane, Miles, Dizzy Gillespie, you know what I mean? Charlie Parker, Lester Young. So I never felt, even to this day, I've done anything. Relative to what you looked up to, the, the shoulders you stood on, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, one of the things I, I always have problems with when uh, people say, the genius of someone sort of genius. No, man, I've been around genius. I know what that is. And I'm nowhere near that, nor have I ever pretended to be. But I've been exquisitely gifted to have had a career that spanned a lot of different, look, I was a sideman, a musician, became a songwriter, became a producer, 
began to compose for TV and television. I mean, but how do I compare that to Kind of Blue? <laughs> okay, or Bitches Blue, you know, you, you just don't. So you never look at yourself, or I have it, as success that way, no. There's always something to climb. Yeah. So why, why did, you know, you decide to uh, burn that M2MA bridge, I yes, guess? Sir. It kind of go on to something else in the mid '80s. Well, the music was changing. Uh, remember, at this point, rap and hip hop was coming on strong, and I always also believe you got to know when to leave the stage. Okay, always know how to leave before your audience does. Okay, and as a result of that, I, I, I wasn't feeling that. Uh, as something that I could do musically. And also I was watching another phenomenon. The video, MTV, became this whole other thing with black music in particular. You know, I mean, remember before uh, Sony threatened to take all their videos off of MTV, they refused to play any black artists. So Michael Jackson, Billie Jean, is the first black video. You can't even imagine that these days. But that's how crazy it was. And in the videos, and this is something that very few people talk about, but I talk about it, R&B artists and, 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 and at many times and at many points were doing videos that didn't reflect their audience. And I always said, why is it always incumbent on black artists to have to cross over? From what to what? Nobody says Rolling Stones got to cross over to R&B charts. So uh, we always stayed true to our audience. Now that, look, anybody who loves our music, look, we love that. But you know, my audience and our audience was basically R&B, which was primarily black. And a lot of other hip white kids who were watching, probably you were one, you know, it's like, but I didn't see a whole bunch of black people in a, in, in a, in a Billy Joel video, why should there be? But the video and the compromise, and also skin tone for the women, the lead women. You know, I, 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 my youngest daughter, who's chocolate, one day we were watching the video show and a Prince video came on and she said, she said, I guess I can't, I can't be in a video. And I knew what she was saying. Like, wow, that's right. Because all these other things that people weren't thinking about were, were began to influence black music. And it wasn't, I mean, look, you didn't have to see Sly Stone to feel, you know, thank you for letting me be myself. You didn't have to see Al Green. For, you know, but now you were selling brands and product, not the legitimacy of the music, how you looked. And it began to change. It changed big. I mean, it, it gets my blood boiling because yeah. when I, you know, I was, the music was everything to me. Um, and the way MTV just, you know, segregated. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I heard David Bowie challenge him. It was a great, it, it was years ago, he was doing an interview and he said, why do you not play any black video? And it was like, the, the MTV host was like, you know, the you know, all the English cats were always were, were super hip. So I, I wanted to finish this point. So when we did the video for Juicy Fruit, first of all, most songs weren't getting videos, R&B songs. We were on the road, flew in for a day, shot it, and left. Now, the lead uh, a female in that video was kind of Asian looking. I mean, I don't think like that. It didn't matter. But when I heard 
young black girls say, man, I, if I'm dark, I can't be in the video. We made it, we made it a point when we did You, Me, and He to have a dark-skinned sister just for representation because it was getting ridiculous. And then some of the funk was getting watered down. You know what I mean? It was, it was, it was a bad period. Big time, the funk got watered down. I, yeah. I, so many, so many black artists back then uh, were told they sounded too black, or it was yeah. too, it was crazy. Now nobody sounded too white, but you can sound you you can be accused of sounding too black. Yeah, I mean hip hop nobody sounded. Said, nobody said that to Wham, <laughs> George Michael. <laughs> you can sound whiter than that. Right. Um, <laughs> so all right, so you you got into to, to scoring and film and and all that good stuff. Um, how did that kind of scratch your itch in terms of your artistic sensibility? I will say this to you. Of everything I've been fortunate enough to participate in and, and accomplish, scoring New York Undercover is my greatest joy for this reason. At that time, there was no black composer for television doing a dramatic series. You had a couple cats doing some comedies, but I thought New York Undercover was a groundbreaking show, had an urban backdrop, African-American and a Latino lead, you know, uh, and just the whole show, Natalie's, that, that feature, you know, where I would bring in uh, a young artist and have them redo a classic. So Mary, Jane, uh, Mary J. Blige comes in and then she does Natural Woman, you know, or I bring B.B. King, you're doing a thrillers going. And, I, and, I, and it was a chance for me to put our sound on television in a way that it had never been. Because I scored the whole show. Even the theme was different, you know. Right. Now, did you get uh, any Emmy? Do they do music uh, for the Emmys? I said I was the only black guy doing it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> an Emmy. I don't know if I got an enema. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, the people knew. The people knew. Yeah. The people loved that show. And, and many over the years have told me how sometimes... They would just lay to see who's, who I would have in Natalie's or just to hear the music. There was nothing like that. The only thing I equate that show with was uh, the, the show of Miami Vice. I felt Miami Vice was groundbreaking musically. Hans Zimmer, he brought some other stuff. And I think what I was able and fortunate enough to do on New York Undercover had never been done. I mean, I'm producing songs. Of, no, none of those Natalie scenes were songs. I reproduced all those records. And I'm scoring the whole show, you know, in the basement. So, did, I mean, did that have you just crazy busy or how, how did yeah, you Yeah, man, the first couple of years, easy, man, I was doing 18 hours. Because the first year, I had to figure out what's my sound going to be. What, what, you know, because like I said, that's the only I don't know how to do nothing like somebody else. It's got to be organic. And, I, and I, one thing I did feel, you know, television music, especially back then, was like very bland. Here's a chase scene. No, 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 man. I'm bringing in the soprano sax with, you know. And if it's a dramatic scene, scoring it, you know, like I was doing Spartacus, you know. I treated every episode like it was a film. Is that music? Is is, is that music compiled on CD or any form like that? Um, a lot of it is on YouTube now. Yeah. Because people have over the years, this, this became like this underground classic. And people like the performances. I mean, we had everybody on there, man. You know, and um, the score, and just the, the texture and the tapestry of, 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 the, of the score. A lot of people, you know, then and now. It, it, you know what? Like everything, 
if it means something to me, it's because it can stand the test of time. I can sit back and put the closer I get to, to you on and still feel cool, you know? Definitely. Yeah, the truth don't have no date, you know? Yeah, yeah, oh, definitely. <laughs> it's timeless music. Uh, <laughs> something else came to mind. Go ahead, man. I I'll wait. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. So sampling. Um, uh -huh. That was kind of a controversial thing with you, at least in the beginning. Uh, wh where are you now with it? And, you know, what, uh, you know, t tell us about, you know, how you uh, reacted. You know, I, the most famous example, of course, is when Biggie did Juicy. But okay. there's a lot of other sampling, too. So, uh, yeah, like tons. Okay. Now, let me give you what actually happened. Like you, as you said earlier in the introduction, I did. I spent 20 years doing a political talk show, co-hosted by this guy uh, Bob Slade and Bob Pickett and myself for 20 years. It's a political talk show. Before joining that, Bob Slade would have this thing on called Year in Review, where it'd be a, a panel about five or six of us, and we talk about what happened that year, like you know, the Sunday before the changing of the year, you know. And I mentioned in that conversation, I said, this has only happened to me a couple of times where I'm driving and something came on the radio. I had to pull over and wait till it was finished because it blew me away. And I said, what it was, was a song called Bring the Noise by this group called Public Enemy. As the conversation evolved, I said, sampling is, is cool as a pit stop, but you shouldn't live there. I said, if you want to practice, if you want to be a lawyer, you got to know something about what? Law. You want to be a, a doctor, you got to know something about what? Medicine. You want to be a plumber, you got to know something about what? Plumbing. So why should you be in music and don't think you got to know something about music? So why does that become a deficiency to, to be knowledgeable? And I never was against sampling. First of all, that would have been hypocritical. What I said was at that time, I was against people sampling other people's music and not paying them. Mm -hmm. That was the crux of the, uh, the conversation. And Daddio of Stetson Sonic heard that interview. Now, he and I have become lovely friends since then, but he took that part. He sampled my whole stuff, piece of my statement, and they did a record called Talking All That Jazz. That's about me. Mm -hmm. But that was my point. Nobody was getting paid. So people were sampling James Brown. They were saying, that argument didn't happen until De La Soul sampled Opeg, okay? And then they started sampling uh, other pop pop artists, and then the attention came to it. Steely Dan, Opeg. And then it became an issue. But I made it an issue when I was seeing people sampling Sly Stone and all that, and nobody was getting paid. Now, Biggie. I was doing New York Undercover the first year. And, and Andre Arell said, look, man, Puffy wants to talk to you. So Puffy was in the building. Puffy comes up to him and says, hey, Puffy. He said, I got this artist I want you to meet. His name is Biggie Smalls. So I said, yeah, I'm here. Let him. He opens the door. Biggie comes in. We hug. Beautiful, man. Me and Puffy sat down and worked out a deal, a page and a half. You get a dollar, I get 50 cents. That's all I ever said. Puffy, out of everybody, was like, boom, made sense. So that whole thing about, I love what Biggie did. And if, I, if Biggie hadn't done that, 
we wouldn't have carried on into the next generations. My favorite remake remake of it was Keisha Cole with Missy called Let It Go. But we've had about 70-something samples of Juicy. Wow. But that was not my argument, not the sampling. It was like cats need to start also knowing how to play or bring cats in. And you see that now. You see that now happening. Cats have a DJ with, with live players. Mm-hmm. You know, Jay-Z's doing it. And I also raised this argument. Not argument, question. I love the Roots, Philadelphia Cats. But why are they the only black band in the last 30 years? Why is that? Black bands have been pretty much eliminated. R&B and funk is predicated on bands. Mm-hmm. Always had great singers. Where, where's the cool in the games? Where's the earthquake fires? Where's the where's the P funks? Where's the uh, Ohio players? Mm. Where's slave? Where's until they? Bands. Our music was broke grew out of bands. Always had great singers. You know, the self-contained band, starting with Sly. I mean, for black folks, you know, there was always self, you know, self-contained bands in pop, you know. But Sly was the first black self-contained band. Before that, the only reference for funk was Godfather, James Brown. But his band was made up of jazz musicians. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So do you think we're going to see that uh, turn around at all and we're going to get some more bands? I, you I know mean, what? I know they're out there, but that leads us into another conversation. What the hell is a record company now? <laughs> you know, A&R, what, what, what has happened that our stuff gets watered down? And I'm gonna take you through a real quick thing. The destruction of singing groups started with, for me, you go back to uh, the lead singers being taken out of the groups, okay? Mm-hmm. You take Lionel Richie out of the Commodores, what happened to the Commodores? You take Michael Jackson out of the Jackson Five, what happened to them? You take Jeff, Jeffrey Osborne out of LTD, take Shaka out of Rufus, all the black bands, but you know, Phil Collins can still be in Genesis and do a solo. All, you know, the other bands can do that, but something happens like it became the destruction of, of the black singing groups. And now we've actually absolutely watched the destruction of a black self-contained band. Not that they don't exist, they're not signed. I know we got a little, you know, it's, it's no, a long I mean, track, but it's a conversation really, that needs to be had and nobody talks about that. That's really interesting to me. Think I mean, about it. It's, it's really interesting too, the way that kind of evolved because originally you know, the, the, black ba- the black bands didn't have really uh, often lead singers and then they did and then the lead singers got taken out and now yeah. the bands have disappeared. Diana Ross, let me go. Take, what happens to the group? But on the, on the pop side, their lead singers could do solo albums and still be in the band. For us, it became the destruction. And now we have an absolute a- absence of black self-contained bands. And that, that's what pressed our music. Oh, well, since you brought that up, I'll throw something else at you. Okay. And that is that um, the, the dichotomy, too, that exists with, you know, like rock bands mm. are able to have these long extended careers where they're basically continuing to do the same brand and style of music successfully, but you don't see that kind of longevity and that ongoing um, genre type music by the black bands i mean right. why you know 
why don't you have more funk bands today when you still have rock bands like your ACDCs, your ZZ Tops, your Aerosmiths, still doing that kind of music yeah. and it's still good. Why aren't there, you know, black bands that are still doing because that? Because I, I, I have a saying, you know, it's a great question, man. And I've obviously I've thought about it greatly. We have this affinity for what I call Mac music. You know, five million servers, very few satisfied. It's like, it's not an appreciation for the gourmet. And, and R&B has been so, as we talked about, watered down. A respect for originality has been diminished greatly. You know, if, 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 if I walked in with a demo of our band and it sounded like Earth, Wind & Fire, I've been thrown out of the building. Originality is not held to the same level that it used to be. Also, we destroy this stuff real quick. It's almost, black music now is more predicated on hit records than hit careers. That's what I'm trying to say. You know, you don't see the generational uh, exchange. If, I used to, if, I went to, if we went to see the Grateful Dead, you saw grandparents, parents, and grandchildren. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's a continuity and respect that goes down. And one of the problems that we had, this is within the black community, was, is what something I call the breakdown of the cultural continuity between older blacks and younger blacks when it came to hip hop and, and, and rap. This whole notion, that's not music. And then the younger kids are saying, well, what y'all was doing ain't music, even though we sampling it. But you know, so you had this dichotomy. And no, no other ethnic group suffered that. Nobody's gonna question the validity of the Beatles. It also happened with remixes. Why does every black record need a remix? You know, what's the remix on ZZ Top? What's the remix on you know, any, any great performance? So again, originality becomes diminished. You know, and I also, and, and look at that, I'm not saying not, there's not great music out here, but also something else said in which I call the glorification of mediocrity. Mm -hmm. Okay, something's great because it sounds like something. It happened in jazz. Somebody's great because they sound like Miles. Or man, he can play just like Coltrane. I don't care about that. Who are you? What's your what's your your signature? So with that, is there anyone out there today that's come to your attention that you think is Kendrick Lamar? You know, in, in, in that generation, Kendrick Lamar kills me. I love the passion. And I love what he's doing. I I, I think he stirred up the pot. He started they always got there's always gotta be a, a pot stirrer, you know, and uh now, if you ask me in jazz, that'd be harder for me to say. Because I played with Sonny Miles. I played with Woody Shaw. I played with Miles. You know, I, if I didn't play with him, I grew up listening to him. Well, so, the, whole, the whole Quiet Storm format really kind of took the wind out of the sails of that whole genre. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about it? What do you think of it? Of what? Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, well, the one th the one great thing is the internet now. I mean, you can find, oh, yeah. you know, good music out there. So even though the the labels aren't bringing it to you, you can find it. You can seek it out and find it. But, you know, that golden era and, and these great times of glory, unfortunately, are probably not going to see again. But we have to pass it along. You know, that's why I do this show. Um, and that's why, you know, with my son, I have a 13 year old son. Oh, great. He, he gets to hear it all. You know, I, yeah. you know, he's, 
he's going to get it. So we have to pass it down because they're not going to get it otherwise. No. Uh, it's this great line out of a Sly Stone song. It says, if you can remember, you cannot forget. Because if you ain't got it now, then you got it to get. You know what I mean? <laughs> so this is part of that legacy, we, what we're doing right now and what you've been doing. Yeah. You know, documenting the information. I wanted to ask you, Antume, you know, for neophytes, how would you um, recommend somebody sort of expose themselves and get into jazz? Because it's a bit of an acquired taste. Oh, no. It's more than a bit. It's, it's a big bite, you know. Um, I, I, I would not be predisposed to saying, go back to the beginning. You know, you, know, you, go, you go listen to bird and you know and, and those cats will train because that might be a bit hard to digest i think if i was turning somebody on to, to to develop you know an appetite i tell them to listen to first kind of blue because for, for every reason that record well first of all it's the biggest selling jazz album ever but the fact that at that on that record miles went into the modes as opposed to a bunch of chord changes. Then I tell them to listen to sketches in Spain. And then I tell them to listen to A Love Supreme. Start there. Then you can work back to Night in Tunisia and, you know, and the, all the classic stuff. And listen to some Lester Young. Because what, what people, I think, especially young people, find hard to digest if it's, if it's anything that doesn't have vocals, you know. So jazz is like instrumental music, but I would try to introduce it to them with some music that's not as complicated as Giant Steps and, you know, Love Supreme, you know, Miles, Tamaba Jamal, you know. Yeah. But uh, that's what I would do, man. I would, I would, I would, you know, I used to take, I used to take castor oil, take the castor oil, but put a little orange juice in it, you know what I mean? So it can go down a little easier. And then expand it. Yeah, sometimes you have to take baby steps. There you go. Yeah, digestible bites. Yes, sir. I agree. And then, and then once you get it, you, you know. Oh, you, look, it's over. Because you know, once you get a taste and develop an appreciation for jazz, you never can go back to to BS. Because to me, jazz is the highest form of intellect, and intellect is the highest form of jazz. I don't know any dumb jazz artists or jazz greats, you know? They were all like brilliant cats and funny. <laughs> so as we're talking now, you mentioned you're 70 now, you know, and yeah. I mean, you look great, you're, oh. you're, you're doing great, so that's very uh, nice to see. Um, do you have any uh, sort of like regrets or a bucket list kind of thing, or where are you at with that? No, man, no, no, no. I don't actually. I, I, that's it's something I did entertain. No, I mean, like I said, man. As and as, as you see with this conversation, you know how many years we've already spent talking about this this conversation has encompassed 50 years of music for me. So what, what are you, you mentioned um, maybe doing the TV show was your highlight possibly, but what, what are you most proud of? 
Would it be that? Yeah, yeah. You know, because I had already done the songwriting and the production. Scoring is a different animal altogether. You know, how do you put music to a scene? And the trick in scoring is always to not let the score get in the way of the dialogue. And um, it's a different tapestry. And I'm down there by myself, just, you know, okay, put a scene up. And then I, you know, but I'm drawing on all those experiences that I had, man. You know, that's all the jazz, the funk, the R&B, that's all that, man, the pop. And I'm just like, you know what? I, I, I thought about this. I would need something that excites my imagination. I would love to do a Bonnie Ray or something. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's, you know, because I've got a lot of other influences, you know, that um, I didn't get a chance to, uh, to delve into musically. So but, Bonnie or, or her handlers are watching? Oh, oh no. Yeah, well, no, it, 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 you know, but there, but there's some great artists out there, you know. But uh, as far as songs, I would say the closer, because that's, you know, you're the first, I mean, on that level. And then, of course, Juicy Fruit, which I felt kind of changed the, the direction of where, where everything was going, you know, sound wise. Just, I, that's all I'm talking about. And that, if it hit or not, but I knew this was some this was something different. Yeah, now, I've had uh, guys like uh, Tom Brown on and Kevin Tony and mm. asked them. Yeah, I, I just watched the Kevin Tony uh, interview the three parts today. Oh yeah, he, do you know yeah, him at all? And 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 Tawatha went to the when I said hot tea. They they went to Howard together. Okay, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's an entertaining guy. Yeah, great um, musician. Yeah, absolutely. So. But I asked them, and I'll throw it at you, um, funk and jazz, mm -hmm. what is the common thread there? Because it's such honest, real, creative music. And there seems to be a close symbiotic relationship between them because there's so many jazz guys that went and did funk. Yes. Even, of course, Miles did funk. So yes. Yes. what is that that binds them? Truth. The truth. You can't fake what the George said, you can't fake the funk. Well, you damn sure can't fake jazz. Okay. Because if you can't handle the heat, they won't even let you in the kitchen. Forget, you know, get out of the kitchen. You wouldn't even get in. You know. But if I were to, to, to address your question, I would do it this way. And I often say this. In jazz, it's mastering complexity. In funk, it's mastering simplicity. How do I keep these few bars and this same beat interesting to you? And I said, once you reach the height of both of those, you understand simplexity. And that's what it is. So I've been the route of avant-garde jazz. I've been in the route of pure funk. It's simplexity. Because a lot of cats that come out of jazz don't have respect for the funk. Some funk cats really don't have respect for the jazz on the level it should be. I've been fortunate to have been in both, lived in both houses, man. And as you said, you touched on earlier. Cool me, gang, man. Khalees took lessons from my father. He's saxophonist, okay? 
Maurice White played with Ramsey Lewis. Ohio players with jazz cats. I mean, all, let me burn, look, Bernie Warrell, Warrell's a dear friend of mine. Bernie Warrell loved McCoy Turner. Okay? Jazz, Pee Wee Ellis co-wrote Cold Sweat with James Brown. He was his band director. All jazz cats. And that connection, I'm glad we touched on that today. That connection has not been talked about enough. And why would it be jazz cats? And then you get gospel. Uh, those are the three things that is just truth. You can't fake no gospel. If you open your mouth and it ain't there, if it don't, if, 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 look, if it don't touch me, it ain't happening. Mm -hmm. And that's the two things specifically about jazz and funk. The truth. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> and of course, Herbie's woven in between them all. Herbie's so done times. it all. Yeah. Herbie's done it all. But what do you start with? Okay. Yeah. Davis. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when he got national prominence. But he was doing Watermelon Man, Cantaloupe Island, back in those. So Herbie was living in both houses. And then by the time he gets to Headhunters, it's all over. Mm. Yeah, I love that stuff. Can't hear it enough. And that's, I mean, the really good stuff, you know, you never get tired of. It never gets played out. Some songs yeah. get played out. The classics, this great music. Just can't yeah, hear it like I said, ain't no, truth, ain't, no, ain't no time on the truth, man. It don't get rusty. <laughs> You know, you know what I mean? And that's a fact. You put on a great record, man. I mean, I put on Knee Deep Now and go, damn. You know what I mean? One Nation. I mean, you know, I put on Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. I mean, it's just all of it. It, it, it Timeless is, I know, an overused uh, phrase, but it's, it's, it's the truth. For me, timeless means it's the truth. And that's why we're, it's all truth and rhythm. So. Yes, sir. So is there anything else that we didn't get into? Uh, I mean, I know, I mean, we could talk politics, but we're not going to get into that on this show. Um, but is there anything else that we didn't get into that you want to get out there as a message um, them to me? No, I think, I think we covered, I hope we covered everything you wanted to ask. Oh, absolutely. I just want to know what's, what's, what's next for you? What are you doing now? Um, you mentioned about a new project with Tawatha. Yeah. So that, that's pretty much it. And, um, Absorbing the new music that's coming out of the new, the new generation, you know, um, I think you only get old when you stop learning and stop having an appreciation, you know, for what the new generation is bringing, you know. And like I said, man, knowing, knowing when it's time to leave. But as I said it, like I said, but I, I might wake up tomorrow and hear something and go, oh, okay. I don't think you. Never unlearn how to ride a bike. You know what I mean? It's just that when you feel like riding again. But other than that, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really cool, enjoying, you know, the best of what is coming. You know. You still got your, uh, your percussion chops and your man. I haven't touched it. You know, no, I, I can sit here. <laughs> yes, you know, no, no, no. But you know, it's all here. It's all here. Yeah. It's all here, you know, it's all here, man, you know. You don't unlearn that. Yeah. Well, definitely look for that Tawatha project. Oh, yeah, man. Soon come. And uh, what's, uh, where were the, where the with contact info for people to keep up with James M. Toomey? Um, 
Facebook. Just got on that a couple weeks ago. Because, you know, you can't really find me because I until recently. But, uh, yeah, you can go on Facebook, James and Tume. Yeah, well, you got a good website, though, too. You know, and, and we're doing, we're just completing the work. I've also decided they've been asked, I've been turning it down for about five years, but unsung. So we're finishing up in unsung. Oh, great. Yeah, great. Yeah. We'll look for that. All right. Well, then with that, hey, we're going to wrap up this edition. It's been an absolute pleasure, man. I appreciate it, man. Appreciate you. Just uh, hang tight. We'll do this outro, and then yes, we'll, sir. we'll settle things up. <laughs> so a huge thanks to my very special guest, Mr. James and to me, one of the most accomplished jazz, funk, and R&B innovators of his generation. Thanks again so much for sharing your time and experiences. And a sincere, a sincere thank you to our listeners and viewers. Be sure to look up uh, upcoming episodes of Truth and Rhythm and catch up on past ones as M2 may has, which is great, uh, at funkinsiff.net, on YouTube, iTunes, and other leading podcast providers. Want to hear from you? Email me, scottg at funkinsiff.net. Let me know what you like, what you don't like, who else you want to see. And um, until next time, on behalf of James M. Tume, this is Scott Dr. Jake Skolfine saying, keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one. Word. <laughs>